This episode of The Dig is brought to you by the listeners who support us on Patreon and by NACLA. Couldn't get enough of Jacobin's special issue on Latin America? Go to NACLA.org, N-A-C-L-A dot org. NACLA is the oldest and most widely read progressive magazine covering the Americas. Praised by Noam Chomsky and Salvador Allende, vilified by Ronald Reagan, and placed under FBI surveillance during the Cold War. With resurgent right-wing governments on the rise across the hemisphere, there's never been a more critical time to keep up to date with Latin American politics and social movements. Subscribe to NACLA today and follow them on Facebook and Twitter. NACLA, it really is, and this is a very personal endorsement here, the unrivaled best source for smart left-wing analysis on Latin America. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This segment of our series on Latin American politics is about Venezuela. Hugo Chavez's rise to power inspired leftists around the world. But today, Venezuela is being rocked by severe economic and political crises. A huge decline in oil prices gutted the revenue stream that Venezuela depended on to bankroll its social spending. Chavez's successor, Nicolas Maduro, is now increasingly turning to violent repression in response to constant, and often violent, protests from the opposition. For the left inside Venezuela and out, what to make of the Bolivarian Revolution and the disastrous current state of affairs in the country is a complicated matter that urgently needs to be analyzed, discussed, and debated. I'm going to keep this intro short because I have far more questions than answers about Venezuela. Fortunately, my guest today is Alejandro Velasco, an historian at NYU. Velasco serves as executive editor for NACLA, Report on the Americas, and he's the author of Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics in the Making of Modern Venezuela, from the University of California Press. Alejandro Velasco, welcome to The Dig. Thanks so much for having me. Venezuela is in a set of profound political and economic crises right now, often deadly ones. And I think a lot of people on the American left are looking for answers, having vocally supported Chavez and finding a lot of inspiration in him and in the Bolivarian Revolution, and now witnessing this disaster unfolding under his successor, Nicolas Maduro. How did Venezuela get to this point, and how do you apportion the blame? So I think that there are some proximal causes and then there are some long-term causes. And part of the problem in terms of thinking about Venezuela and its crisis in the context of the left is that the long-term causes and the proximal causes bleed into one another. Um, and it's hard to distinguish between one and the other. And so what I mean by that is um, Venezuela, as you know, and people should know, is a petrostate. And a petrostate means that the entire economy depends on this single commodity. Um, and Chavez didn't, uh, not only did not uh, move away from that model, but in fact, he deepened it. Um, and he deepened it in a way that was actually quite different from you know, previous uh, moments of, of 
commodity booms in, in Venezuela and Latin America, which was to actually try to distribute the rents of oil much more directly towards popular sectors. Um, and that's where you saw this tremendous boost in, um, in statistics and figures in terms of poverty reduction, in terms of access to health, access to food security, et cetera, et cetera. And that, in part, um, helped to burnish Chavez's image as um, not just a defender um, of the poor, but really uh, an architect of what, especially in the context of the late 80s, um, 1990s, had been this neoliberal hegemony. And so speaking about the need for states to really safeguard and attend to their populations rather than to leave everything to the market, that had been a hallmark of his, of his, of his vision. Um, and yet, because of its reliance on this petrostate dynamic, um, what you have is, uh, you know, what you had was a, a significant dependency um, that over time people understood was going to lead to significant problems, especially because there was a very you know, contradictory message going on in terms of leftism. On the one hand, you know, Chavez spoke tremendously, especially after 2005, about you know, fostering a socialist revolution, which um, was ostensibly moving away from consumerism, away from the idea of wealth accumulation, especially uh, of individual rights and much more towards collective rights. And yet at the same time, because there was this tremendous flush of, uh, of cash um, that circulated very freely, people actually were deepening their consumerism. And so, you know, the discursive and, and the real kind of dimensions of what socialism of the 21st century, as he called it, were um, created a significant breach. Of course, it fell upon Maduro after Chavez's death um, to have to fend with some of these dynamics that were already in play. Um, and uh, to the extent that uh, Maduro for a while was able to ride on the coattails of Chavez's charisma, um, he did so effectively, especially through 2013 after Chavez's death. But by 2014, what you find is that the opposition feels incredibly emboldened. And this is an opposition that you know, from the very beginning had not recognized as legitimate, um, not just Chavez and Chavismo, but the very idea that they should not be in power. Um, and so uh, once you have a much weaker figure like Maduro, not as charismatic as Chavez, and is facing tremendous significant, you know, significant um, economic downturn, especially as oil prices um, drop, what you have is uh, an opposition that, you know, very much more frontally than before, much more aggressively than before, and certainly more effectively than before, um, you know, is, is, is trying to mount or, you know, attempted to mount, a, um, you know, attacks on the government. Um, and so, and at the same time, you have Maduro um, not quite understanding um, uh, the dynamic at play and believing that the real problem here is, uh, you know, U.S. imperialism and U.S. meddling, which there is some, but the real issue has to do with these underlying factors, the, the economic indicators, the, the dependency um, uh, that Chavez did not, you know, move away from and Maduro to some extent deepened, right? And so now you have a situation where in terms of apportioning blame, it's very difficult to say, well, you know, who is who's to blame? Chavismo and Chavez is to blame for not moving away from the model of petrodependency. Um, uh, Maduro certainly to blame for deepening that and not really attending to the concerns of especially popular sectors that had long been the, the lifeblood of Chavismo, um, especially as people are struggling. And you know, relying on the message uh, about foreign intervention rather than on a message of, well, we need to do what's necessary and required to make sure that what remains of, of the Chavista legacy about 
you know, making the state relevant and making the state attend to the needs of popular sectors actually remains true, right? So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a confusing situation even for people not on the left uh, in the United States, you know, certainly for leftists in Venezuela, it's, it's a confusing situation as well. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of violence in the streets of, of Venezuela right now to what's the picture in terms of government repression and what's, what are we seeing in terms of violence on the part of protesters? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of violence. Um, it's it's curious though because you know, one of the things about Venezuela is that it's been a very violent country for a long time. It's it's sort of the quotidian violence of, you know, tens of thousands of people murdered each year, um, of you know tremendous amounts of insecurity, you know, petty crime to violent crime, etc. Um, it's an extremely huge, armed, well armed country. People yeah, I was just carry say, guns. It's a huge amount of weapons circulating everywhere, right? Everybody has guns. So, you know, to some extent, the story of Venezuela is not how violent it is, but how violent it's not given all these conditions. And, you know, of course, tremendous polarization. So, you know, um, yes, of course, you know, 90 people have, have died in, in, in various, um, through various means and through various ways over the last, you know, you know three and a half months of protest. But, You'd expect, again, you know, given how many guns are in the street, how much you know, polarization there is, how much anger and, and frustration that you know, the number would be far more, um, which is not to in any sort of way excuse or uh, minimize the level of repression, which remains really high. So basically how it has happened is that the government understands that it needs to hold the opposition geographically at bay, especially in Caracas and areas of the, uh, the city that has long been identified with the opposition, not allow it to enter the center of the city, which is, or the western parts of the city, which is you know, much more of a Chavista stronghold. Um, and as a result, there's this you know, sort of territorial battle, right, where every time the opposition tries to move into these other areas, it's repressed significantly, right? And so because, so this is on one hand sort of the, the level of state violence, there's also informal violence of armed civilian sectors, so-called colectivos, which um, have their own stake in the affair, um, especially because they realize that they would be the first ones targeted in a kind of transitional scenario. So they, they very much see this as an existential battle. And so they take the fight to, directly to the opposition in armed ways. Um, meanwhile, the opposition realizes that there's a, you know, that it, it's, it's that I, I'm not saying that it's doing this consciously, but there is definitely a, um, a, a, uh, immediate effect in the in, in the images of, of a state uh, repressing its its citizens, even though you have greater and greater, not institutionalization, but formalization of a violent, um, uh, you know, of a violent dynamic where, you know, younger people um, armed, not armed, but, but, you know, with Molotov cocktails, with, with shields, with, with all sorts of other kinds of uh, you know, with with all sorts of other kinds of of accoutrements, that they that they they seek the state repression, right? And so they're prime for this kind of confrontation. Um, and when it comes, then those are the images that circulate, right? So right now, there's a significant amount of sort of international media battles at play in terms of what this movement actually represents. Is it violent? Is it nonviolent? Does it have some violent components? Are those violent components? Um, part of the official narrative? Or are they not part of the official narrative? Um, and to the extent that the state is um, is desperately trying to keep them at bay, then it also resorts to this kind of repression. And the other part of it, too, is that, you know, as I mentioned before, there's just a significant amount of chaos and anarchy within the state, within the state apparatus. And so it's not 
the kind of command and control that might say, well, here are the rules of engagement that are going to be followed. Um, especially as the conflict just goes into one and another day, there's a significant amount of fatigue, and that fatigue devolves into um, you know, lack of orders and regular procedure being followed, which then just leads to more, you know, more intense repression, sometimes the escalation of repression. And the final part of that is, as I mentioned before, as more and more popular sectors engage in protests, not, again, as part of the opposition movement, but because of the broader desperation of the situation in Venezuela, the state cannot distinguish between protests that are anti-government and protests that are more about these material needs and, and, and sort of desperation. And so it's it's blanketing broad, it's broadly brushing this repressive um, response, and that's leading people to be even more, um, you know, more disenchanted, right? And so the, the violence is significant. It's not as high as one would expect given the situation in Venezuela, but the fact that it's becoming more and more generalized and unable to distinguish between popular sectors and elite sectors of the population um, suggests that there is a, that we're reaching a breaking point. Before we get deeper into the politics and context, can you explain a bit about the human scope of the of the current crisis in terms of access to food and medicine and the economic situation, and in terms of the violence, um, both on the part of the state and civilians? What are Venezuelans of everyday Venezuelans of different social and economic class and position experiencing? Mm-hmm. Well, the crisis is as severe and to some extent worse than you read about in, in newspapers. Um, and that has to do with a couple of factors. Number one, the, the pragmatic effect of dependency on oil means that you become dependent not on the revenues of, on oil, but you become dependent, with, which you do, of course, but you become dependent on imports because it's cheaper in times of oil booms to buy everything from abroad rather than to produce domestically. Um, and so over the years, when there was a significant oil boom um, under Chavez between 2000, 2004 and 2014, um, there was less and less investment in domestic production and more and more investment in, or more and more reliance on imports. Of course, when oil prices plummet, you no longer have enough cash to be able to sustain those levels of imports, right? And so what that means concretely is that, you know, the kind of food uh, importation that you had before is no longer the case, which, you know, but demand, of course, is, is, is as high as it ever was. Um, and so, you know, in terms of food, for instance, people just don't have access to products, not just because they aren't available, but the ones that are available are coming through the black market. And that's the other feature of this, right? That um, in 2003, Chavez implemented a, a differential exchange rate from dollars to Bolivar as the national currency. And which that was done as a as an emergency measure to stem capital flight in the context of what was a ruinous oil industry strike by the opposition. Um, but usually, what happens is that if you maintain those exchange controls, then that just breeds um, corruption, and that's exactly what has happened, right? So you know the official rate is ten to one, but the unofficial rate, as, as of last count, like yesterday, was eight thousand to one, right? So if you have access to preferential dollars. The incentive is extreme to sell those in the black market or to buy products at the official rate and then to sell those products at the black market, which is exactly what's happening, right? So people know, you know, don't have access to food because it's just not coming in the quantities that's required because there's no petrodollars. 
but the food that is there um, is also out of their reach because they just don't have the money to pay for black market rates, especially popular sectors. Um, but what's interesting too is that you know there's this general collapse of infrastructure, right? So you know there's no money to to, uh, to pay for just basic uh, maintenance of roads, and so roads are, are are collapsing, bridges are collapsing. Certainly, in terms of 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 hospitals um, and access to, to medical services, that has been collapsing as well, right? So there's just no money to go around. In the meantime, Venezuela goes deeper and deeper into foreign debt to try to just generate any kind of cash. But in doing so, it means that it's, it's using most of its revenue to service other debt that it has acquired at really um, unfavorable rates. So there's just no money in what it translates into the everyday level is that people just don't have access to even the most basic things. Um, the government has tried to lay some of that through the you know, um, monthly distribution, what are called um, claps, uh, uh, basically bags of food that are sold at a very, very discounted rate. But there's also problems in terms of the distribution logistics of that that have been um, generating more and more protests. Um, and that then feeds into the second part, which is, you know, what's the effect of violence of, of the protests, especially the opposition that have been going on now for um, almost three months. And that has to do, or over three months, and, and the impact of that is is a little bit um, twofold. On the other, on the one hand, the protests, the fact that they've been sustained for so long um, and have more and more degenerated into violent confrontation as their primary mechanism means that the country is just generally unstable. Um, but it also means that the state is putting its resources and trying to quell protests that are happening. And therefore, it's not attending to other kinds of needs. And so, for instance, insecurity is getting worse because you know, police are mostly being directed towards controlling protests. In the interior of the country, the situation is dire because people are protesting lack of access to food and medicine. Um, and you know, most of the police is not, is not present. And so there's rioting and looting that, that's happening in the interior of the country. And so that's just creating this general sense of anarchy um, that contri- you know, contributes to the, you know, the, the kind of desperation in terms of lack of access to basic um, food products. So it's, it's as dire as, as the situation can be. And the final point of that is just to say that, you know, especially for popular sectors who, have, who feel very much abandoned by Chavismo and by Maduro in particular, um, they also do not feel that the opposition is a legitimate um, uh, representative of their concerns, and so they, you know, they're they, they're sort of fending for themselves, and that sense of having no one or nowhere to turn to um, is creating increasingly, uh, you know, a desperate dynamic that is you know, leading more and more people into the streets in a way that, um, you know, it is predictable, and yet that is not easily legible as either opposition or anti-government protests. These are just protests primarily out of desperation. Hey, this is Bosco Sankara, editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but the Dig and Dan Denver are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on the show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. Uh, To support the show, go to patreon.com and look up the Dig. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the show. 
Tell me a little bit more about the what the popular base for Chavismo and the Bolivarian Revolution was and where those people are today and where you think they might be heading as these conflicts intensify between an opposition that's still largely, I believe, made up of of, of, of more affluent people and a government that's um, increasingly repressive and, and, and lacking support from its traditional base. Chavez always spoke to more, most powerfully to sectors that had felt themselves and were actually disenfranchised um, and left out of the, um, the oil pie during the years of two-party democracy between 1958 and 1998. Um, he you know, railed in, in a way that, that spoke very, very powerfully against the interests of these elites that had really um, reserved for themselves the, be- you know, the best of, of the resources that, you know, that were coming in. Um, at the same time, he also in the beginning had a strong anti-corruption message, which spoke to middle class sectors that also felt themselves um, to be increasingly um, unrepresented by these uh, the two parties of the period. But his most significant core support was always popular sectors. And Venezuela is the most one of the most urbanized countries in Latin America. And so what that really means is that he spoke primarily to urban popular sectors, um, uh, you know, people in barrios, people in, um, in what are you know, in Venezuela, the, the barrios is, is sort of the, the parlance for, for, for slum communities. But, you know, we're talking slum generally, right? These are communities that, like favelas that, that are well integrated into the urban core. Um, and they've been, you know, uh, articulated um, over decades. Um, and so this was always the primary base of Chavismo. Um, and certainly it was a base that deepened its commitment to Chavez in particular, especially when the idea of Chavismo was still very, very kind of up in the air and what it actually meant was up in the air. Um, and uh, what they brought to the relationship was a very divergent series of expectations about what the state should be in the context of the revolution. For some, the state should, it was basically about the distribution of resources. For others, it was about the transformation of society, right? Um, and the clearest indication of that schism between, you know, more radical and more moderate sectors of Chavismo is evidenced today, but had long been stemming as a result of what the constitution was, right? So the, what, one of the first things that Chavez passed in 1999 was the was a Bolivarian constitution, which enshrined the protagonistic and participatory nature of democracy. But that, over time, came to still rely on the idea of a liberal system of representative government, even though it was more participatory. And that was going to chafe with a different vision of the future, which was more radical, which was about changing Venezuela into a much more communal, much more socialist state. And so, you know, beginning in 2007, what you begin to see is a series of splits within Chavismo, where some try to move towards a more socialist line that conflicts with any kind of liberal understandings of democracy. Um, and those whose primary allegiance was you know, around the concept of, uh, of a more participatory, protagonistic democracy, right? And so we're seeing some of those debates play out now um, around the figure of Maduro, who's pushing much more this sort of communal state line and those sectors who feel like that abandons the, the, the early promises of Chavismo about more participation, about more protagonism, right? Um, but more, you know, more broadly speaking, in terms of the, the nature of the support, it is primarily 
you know, urban popular sectors who feel themselves kind of torn between it's an increasingly, you know, a corrupt elite that just wants to remain in power because they realize that if they were to leave power, um, you know, they would have a lot to answer for, especially if an opposition government comes to power. Um, and an opposition, which, as you, know, you mentioned, um, remains uh, a, a source of tremendous distrust. And the clearest indication of that are some, you know, are polls that come out that say that, you know, Maduro still oddly and surprisingly has about 20% of, of support of the population, and the opposition has about 55% of support, which means that there's a big gap of 30, 35% in the middle that are, are, are disenchanted Chavistas who can't bring themselves um, to support the opposition, right? And so that big number in the middle speaks to, um, you know, the, 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 the sense of bereftness of, of vast sectors of, of Venezuela's population, especially those who once, uh, you know, supported Chavismo. What sort of people or, or class currently govern the Venezuelan state? Who's, who's actually in charge right now and how um, do they relate or not relate to the one-time Chavista base? So ostensibly Maduro is in charge, but the fact is that there are tremendous schisms within the governing elite. Uh, Maduro comes from a civilian wing, which in the 1990s especially um, sort of tries to write the coattails of Chavez uh, on the principle of, of especially labor organizing and union organizing. And so there's this one faction that is more civilian faction um, that has a kind of tenuous hold on another major faction of, of Chavismo, which is it's smart, much more coming from the military side. And that's represented by people like Diosdado Cabello, who was the former chief of the, um, of the National Assembly, the former president of the National Assembly. Um, and the military has really, not just under Maduro, but um, from before as well, because Chavez, of course, also came from the military. Um, they've really staked a tremendous ground in terms of uh, of their control over key sectors of Venezuelan society and economics in particular, right? So, you know, they control food distribution. Um, obviously, they are uh, ahead in terms of the repressive state. But it's in the food distribution in particular where you see the, the greatest sort of uh, fault lines emerging between popular sectors that once supported Chavismo and, and the governing elite. Because the military has grown significantly corrupt um, as they're, uh, especially from the, the, the top echelons of the military, um, you know, that they are responsible for, or they, they receive these preferential laws and then or they receive imports of food at preferential rates and then they siphon off significant quantities of that to sell at black market rates rather than direct them direct, you know, to the, to the population that needs them most, right? And so, and this is, stuff that people see every day. They, they see it in the distribution centers. They see it in the abuse of, 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 of military um, uh, that, you know, that doesn't want, uh, you know, that, that doesn't distribute things as they should. Um, and so this creates this tremendous distance between popular sectors and a significant branch of the, um, or this faction of Chavismo. And meanwhile, the civilians, they, you know, they realize that they don't have the guns. Um, and so they are kind of at the mercy of what this military faction is doing. And a figure like Maduro, who um, isn't, is, is personally a weak figure, does not uh, 
exude the kind of leadership and charisma that, that Chavez did can't keep these factions at bay. And so what you have now is within Chavismo a tremendous degree of, of, of anarchy as well that kind of reflects the, um, you know, what's happening on the ground as well. So you know, this is why, you know, when people say Maduro is a dictator, is, is sort of a totalitarian um, leader, I, I, I laugh at that because it's not about totalitarianism in Venezuela. It's really about chaos, both at the level of leadership and at the level of how that um, you know, translates to events on the ground. Did Chavez, when he was alive, ever try to more formally structure an institutional relationship between the state and the movements that supported him? Um, He created the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, I believe, was that around 2006? 2007. Oh, 2007. But it never really became a vehicle for popular democracy. Yeah, that's correct, because it was always a little bit unclear what the purpose both of the BASUV was and what... You know, organized popular sectors wanted, right? And um, to a very large extent, even though Chavez was nurtured by the organization of popular sectors, he also very much had a clear vision, um, especially after 2005, 2006, when he announced socialism of the 21st century, um, of what the direction was going to be. And so social movements that did not quite align themselves with that vision found themselves increasingly marginalized. Um, the creation of the PSUV emerged as a way to bring all these sectors together within a shared socialist vision. Um, but the effect of it was also to create a hyper-verticalist um, you know, organization that was slow to respond to the uh, the demands, the variegated demands of popular sector, um, organized popular sectors, right? Um, and so that, again, sort of generated deeper and deeper dissatisfaction, which did not, again, translate necessarily into support for the opposition, but it did translate into a general weakness in, in the networked organization of, of Chavismo, which is playing out today, right? Um, so yeah, in that sense, uh, you know, Chavez did not uh, uh, articulate um, the uh, you know the, the heterogeneous demands and visions that um, were coming up from from organized popular sectors, um, and to the extent that he tried to focus them in on the PSU, um, uh, it also created a significant amount of disenchantment. Was this current situation an inevitable outcome of Chavismo and the Bolivarian Revolution? Could could the story have different? Could this story have ended differently if um, the government had taken a different approach to the economy, oil and its dependence on oil in particular, and also in terms of how popular participation was structured? Absolutely. It's interesting because the answer to that question is all about timing, right? So today, the image that we have of Chavez and Chavismo is of a, you know, sort of a socialist firebrand who tried to revolutionize his country along socialist lines. Um, the fact is that Chavez didn't really speak about socialism until 2005, which was you know, seven years after he was elected president. And so there is this period of time in the beginning of Chavismo when there was very little mention of a socialist orientation, number one, but also there was, was a period of time when 
there was no commodity boom in, in Venezuela or Latin America. And that, you know, that begins to happen around 2004. But between 1998 and 2004, what you have is a tremendous effervescence of popular sector organizing around the idea that we matter, that we belong, that we are part of this um, republic, not just, a, uh, not just one sector of the republic, but we are um, legitimate, uh, we can exert legitimate control. Um, this is what led people to the streets in the wake of a media blackout in the 2002, uh, April 2002 coup. This is what led people spontaneously to take to the streets in the context of the oil industry strike of um, late 2002, 2003. This is what led people to you know, defend their spaces and the idea of a a dramatic change in society in 2003, 2004, especially with the, the recall referendum effort by the opposition. And this was a time before there were any of the kind of social programs, so-called misiones, that um, Chavez be, uh, you know, began to, to implement as a result of the oil boom, right? And so this period of time really spoke to that moment that you described earlier of, 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 of not just people in the U.S. left, but really of the international left saying there's something happening in Venezuela that is real, that is palpable, that is trying to do something different, even if it's quite ill-defined as yet. What happens is that after 2004, 2005, because of the commodity boom and because of the existing nature of the Venezuelan petrostate and the lack of a clear vision of, of, of what the revolution was going to be, um, even at the time, as, as Chavez and Chavismo was you know, primarily concerned with, you know, not, uh, you know, not being ousted by the opposition and its insurrectionary, you know, kind of rebellious moves. Um, it took it a long time to figure out, well, this is our vision. This is actually what we want. And by the time that happened, oil prices were now at an historic high. And, uh, you know, people began to demand something more concrete from the, uh, from all their efforts from the previous four or five years. And that's what brought about these social programs and the social, you know, the, the misiones. And that, at that moment, um, something was lost. At that moment, even though, of course, the immediate effect of that was to significantly uh, redistribute income, it did not come with a solidified, uh, you know, with, with, a, with a sense of, um, of, 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 of a collective consciousness that could allow for the creation of something different. Um, that's the moment that I think the dynamic of inevitability around, you know, dependency on oil um, and then the collapse of oil prices and what we're seeing now uh, was really initiated. But before that, before 2004, what you had in Venezuela was this tremendously exciting um, uh, popular movement linked with the state trying to do something different, even though what that thing was going to be remained ill-defined, but it was primarily around the idea of participation, protagonism, and especially of popular sectors who had a legitimate and rightful claim to the nation, as they should. Ironically, given that the economic elite in Venezuela you know, believed that it was had this persecution complex the moment that Chavez was from the moment that Chavez was elected in in reality, what the oil boom allowed him to do was channel a lot of wealth to poor people in Venezuela without touching or transforming class relations in a way that you'd think a socialist would would want to. No, oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact is that, you know, 
nationalization of industry didn't take place until between you know 2006, 2007, and at that it wasn't just a strict nationalization. It was usually expropriation, which implied huge you know um, amounts of money paid for industry um, that created you know capital um, circulation. Um, the private sector, at, even at a, the height of nationalizations, uh, remained around 70%. Key sectors of the, of the economy, like banking, telecommunications, were not nationalized, right? So, you know, anyone who objectively could see the situation would know that this was not socialism, and certainly not the kind of socialism that the, the opposition was decrying at the time. And, you know, it's it, I, I would submit to you that it's not true necessarily that the opposition um, felt themselves to be persecuted. That wasn't what drove their um, opposition, especially the more virulent, um, you know, undemocratic ones in the beginning of Chavismo up until 2003, 2004, and to some extent continuing. What was really grating at them was the sense that they no longer held a claim to rule exclusively. Right. What, what really chafed at um, these elite sectors of the population was that they were no longer the rightful heirs of Venezuela. Right? That was the primary battle. Um, to whom did the country belong? The question of you know, what, in fact, was happening in the economy was, to some extent, secondary. The real question is, to whom does the nation belong and who has the legitimate right to rule? Um, and in that sense, it, it uh, you know, that's that was the dynamic of, of, of the confrontation. What ended up happening after 2005 and, and sort of the, the, the rise of a more concerted socialist effort was, as you mentioned, there was so much money to be had um, that Chavez thought that he could do two things simultaneously. Right. On the one hand, he could, you know, redistribute oil rents and income directly um, through cash and other kinds of indirect uh, uh you know, this disbursement, health, food subsidies, et cetera. But that, of course, created a huge incentive for consumerism, um, which private sector, uh, you know, the private sector uh, filled. Um, so, yeah, you're right. There, you know, there's a huge contradiction there that just feeds into this, this larger dynamic about you know, what Chavismo actually was saying and what Chavismo was doing on the ground. And the two, the breach between the two became unsustainable over time. What what options might there have been? They probably wouldn't have been easy or else some Venezuelan government sometime in the last uh, however many decades Venezuela has been pumping oil out of the ground um, would have would have done it. But w- what what could have Chavez hypothetically have done to diversify away from oil dependency? The idea of diversifying Venezuela's economy has been around since the 1920s um, and has been implemented poorly uh, over time. I think that the answer in Venezuela is not so much about the diversification of the economy. Um, the fact is that Venezuela is not as large a country that could generate the kind of um, uh, you know export industry that that, you, that would be required to sustain it beyond the revenues of oil. What Venezuela really needs is a better management of its oil revenues, and that would come from uh, not overspending when oil booms come and not underspending when oil busts come, right? And for a while, there was a so-called macro-stabilization fund. So, for instance, this is what the Norway model is. They have a huge macro-stabilization fund, and they 
have it pegged historically to say that you know if oil prices move beyond a particular number, then all the uh, additional revenues go towards this fund, which can't be touched unless oil prices fall below a certain number, right? Um, that is something that Chavez could certainly have done. Um, but that, of course, would not have necessarily been uh, in line with a vision to change the country along socialist lines, although it could have been, right? I mean, it could have been the nationalization of industries if it had been kept within the means of this, you know, the, you know these, these high and low bands. Um, but the fact is that what the petrostate dynamic does is it creates the illusion of limitless infinite wealth. Um, and the, you know, the really sad lingering dynamic of this is that because there are these moments of significant boom, which create the illusion of limitless wealth, there's this tremendous over, uh, you know, spending that happens in ways that are not going to generate long-term uh, returns on investment. Um, and by the time the oil busts come, not only does that entire apparatus collapse, but it creates huge necessities that by the time the next oil boom rolls around, generates even greater incentive for people to overspend to try to correct from the mistakes of the past, right? And to, especially in an electoral dynamic. Um, and so, you know, this is the real tragedy of not just Venezuela, but of petrostates more generally, right? The ones that that experience this dynamic of not, you know, of, of each oil boom creates the illusion of wealth that then results in uh, conditions of greater poverty, greater marginalization in the context of oil busts, which then creates the conditions in the next oil boom to just try to correct all those mistakes, but doing so in a way that is unsustainable over time, right? And this is what we're seeing today. The fact is that the opposition has no, uh, you know, program. It has never announced a program that would uh, deal with the issue of what should we do next. Instead, they say, well, when the next oil boom rolls around, then we will do it better. The problem isn't about oil blooms and oil busts. The problem, is, oh, or it is about oil blooms and oil busts, but it's not about how you spend, uh, you know, what, how much you spend. Um, it's about how much you save, basically, what it is. So, yeah, I think that there was absolutely a way to uh, move on a more egalitarian society mode, um, but not without having to diversify. It was just about, you know, how you deal with and where you sort of prioritize the, you know, the boom when it comes. Hey, this is Larry Website, the Duke's new Postmaster General. Our show, which tells the stories from the front lines of American class warfare and international politics, are made possible by the listeners who support us on Patreon.com. If you haven't yet, please go to Patreon.com, search for the Dig, and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month goes a really long way. Only through donations to our Patreon and class struggle can the best of us emerge. Back to the show. What is the opposition currently? What various political forces um, constitute it? What are their their, their political goals? Um, I, I believe there's a what's described often as a more moderate and a more far right wing. Yeah, I mean the opposition has long been a variegated, heterogeneous grouping of um, you know old um, staunch elites, economic elites, uh, the old political parties. Um, uh, Professional sector, middle class, upper middle class sectors um, that have not, you know, been been part of the political process, but felt themselves uh, far more energized as they felt their interests to be threatened, and especially their, um, you know, the leadership of the country being threatened. Um, over time, that has grown to include other kinds of groups, um, 
disaffected Chavistas, um, whose legitimacy in terms of their hold on popular sectors um, is far greater than that of traditional elites. Um, and yet what this results in is tremendous division within the ranks of the opposition. Uh, so one of the interesting things about this particular moment is that there's greater unity than ever before among the opposition. Um, and that unity is coming not just in the, on the principle that we need to get rid of Maduro because the crisis is so severe, but because the crisis is so severe, um, we are seeing more and more this enchantment on the ranks of popular sectors that were otherwise once aligned with Chavismo, even though that doesn't necessarily translate into support for the opposition. It creates a general condition of instability that makes it much more difficult for the government to discern between protesters that are um, anti-government and protesters that are um, not anti-government, but rather expressing their desperation at the economic situation, right? And so and the opposition is united around the idea that it would create enough um, instability in the country, given the economic crisis that already is affecting it, um, then the government will be unable to sustain the levels of repression that it has. And more importantly, it will be unable to distinguish between um, uh, repression towards traditional opposition sectors, which remain at its core, um, you know, upper middle class and, uh, and traditional elites. And those that are now increasingly taken to the streets because they just um, are desperate. Is there a solution in the short term to the crisis in Venezuela that doesn't end with a conservative or establishment government that looks a lot like what prevailed in the era before Chavez that excludes the the popular sectors that became such a critical part of the Bolivarian revolution? I think there is, but it's, I think, um, uh, how to put it? I think there is, but it's not, it's not the first choice certainly of the, of, of the opposition, which is to say, if the Maduro government falls, obviously much will depend on the nature of it of it falling. It could be that that he's forced to resign by pressure from sectors from within Chavismo. It could be that he is um, forced to resign in a coup from from you know military sectors that ostend towards some sort of like democratic um, you know vision. Uh, it could be that he's ousted by reactionary sectors within the military. Um, so it's it's unclear the the nature of 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 how Maduro would would leave power, um, but even the the most textbook transitional scenarios where there's negotiation between parts that are otherwise antagonistic, um, what you would find is that an opposition government in power, even if it is a transitional government, would be in power not. It's, it's popular foundations, it's popular legitimacy would be contested from the very first day. Because what popular sectors demand, especially, is that their basic needs uh, be attended to. And even though the opposition, the organized opposition, has talked about a, you know, creating a humanitarian um, channel to, to alleviate the immediate um, needs of the population, the fact is that in the longer term, what you mostly hear are a return to privatization, a return to not just of, of, of most of the, of the economy, but, but the oil industry in particular, um, uh, a return basically to those models of neoliberalism from the 1990s especially. And so as a result, um, what you would have in that scenario would be the same popular sectors upon which right now the opposition is 
claiming some kind of legitimacy to conduct a change of government would also be the ones that would rise up if these series of reforms and, and structural adjustment would take place because they would be the ones most affected. Um, and at that, that point, the, you know, certainly in terms of the international community, what you would find is the same kind of you know, repression happening domestically, but the international community would then have to respond to what it assumed or has been projecting as a you know, social democratic um, opposition, which is not in fact the case. Um, and how would it respond to this opposition government that is, um, you know, that is repressing the very same population that uh, it said that it was going to represent? Um, so, br- so briefly, just to finish that 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 thought before I let you go, um, wh- what what is a possible solution that that doesn't that doesn't just uh, reproduce the current economic crisis with a right wing government in power? It's hard to see, but the um, you know one alternative uh, would be for um, one alternative for would be for a uh, a constitutional referendum that or not even a constitutional referendum, but a a commitment on the part of all parties that the constitution that will be followed is the constitution of nineteen ninety nine which again enshrines this participatory protagonistic mechanism. And this would allow for a couple of things. Number one, disenchanted Chavistas, disaffected Chavistas, would feel like the work, as I mentioned before, of, um, of that early Chavismo, which was trying to change the country, but in a way that allowed for greater inclusion of uh, diverse voices and diverse opinions, to, re- to hash out their differences through elections, which at the end of the day was the major source of legitimacy for Chavez and for Chavismo, that it always um, uh, sought to exert its, uh, its influence through the electoral, through the, through the ballot box, right? And that, to the extent that Maduro has suspended elections, that has been a huge blow, not just for Venezuela's democracy, but for Chavismo and, and Chavez supporters in particular, who always really thought that you know, the, the vote was what kept us in power, not, uh, you know, not, not just brute force. And so I think that a consensus around the 1999 Constitution as the way forward through which we will be able to articulate differences would also force the opposition, you know, radical sectors of the opposition who have never recognized the 1999 Constitution as legitimate to say something actually changed in Venezuela. And what changed in Venezuela that was, was that popular sectors demanded and won in a legitimate way uh, a say in the conduct of the country. Right? Um, so to the extent that you know, uh, sectors of Chavismo that just want to remain in power are uh, uh, sort of attacking the 1999 constitution, in the case of Maduro by, by proposing a constituent assembly, um, and sectors of the opposition have long attacked the 1999 Constitution because it, it no longer gave them sort of exclusive uh, hold of, of leadership of the country. That would in itself constitute a significant kind of concession on the on the part of radicals of both sides to agree to not just a set of rules, but to agree to the very idea that Venezuela, you cannot return to pre-1999 Venezuela. But the answer in Venezuela is not to start from, uh, you know, from a blank slate, which is just going to lead Venezuela on the same path as it has been, um, you know, in every previous moment of, uh, of significant upheaval. But that the thing that changed is that um, 
especially popular sectors, demand a seat at the table and did so by enshrining the 1999 Constitution. So that, I mean, obviously that's a little bit abstract, but the, you know, to the extent that, that you know, we talk to people on the ground, like this affected Chavistas on the ground, to me, I've been surprised just how deeply um, uh, upset and angry they are at Maduro, number one, for having suspended elections. And number two, for proposing this constituent assembly, which in a very direct way says that the 1999 constitution is not sufficient to bring about revolution. And as a result, it seems to completely put aside the tremendous work that went not only into that constitution, but into defending it between 1999 and 2004, 2005, 2006, et cetera, right? Um, so that, you know, that would be uh, a way forward that would incorporate, um, you know, sacrificing, you know, but what that would uh, require sacrificing, you know, radicalism on, on both sides of the, of the equation. And I, I'll just add, it, it's a radicalism that is not helpful for promoting social justice in Venezuela. I'm not just talking about a, you know, sort of like leftist radicals, but I'm talking about sort of a, a radical vision that says that the only thing that we need to do is stay in power um, or the only thing we need to do is to gain power. That's the kind of radicalism I'm talking about. Alejandro Velasco, thanks so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Velasco is an historian at NYU and the author of Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once reportedly said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our Postmaster General is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, and so does spreading the word to your friends. Also, find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. <laughs>